This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. We told you the other day we're going to keep telling you, and we mean it, do not look. Do not look. I looked. You looked. Yeah. <laughs> don't look at your 401k. There's research for the show. Yeah, don't, don't do <laughs> it. It's terrible. Don't look. The bears came out of hibernation. They're hungry, chewing through stocks so much that briefly today we were in bear market territory. We'll go in depth and tell you what that means. Maybe we should start to worry, by the way, uh, somewhat anyway, about uh, monkeypox. The World Health Organization held a meeting about the virus. As new cases are being found in Europe, could it reach pandemic levels? And speaking of a pandemic, public health officials in L.A. County could bring back an indoor mask mandate soon if COVID cases keep rising. We'll look into whether businesses will really want to enforce this all over again. We'll talk to a reporter in Ukraine who's been covering the fighting in the Donbass region where Russia is focusing most of the efforts now. We'll go in depth into what it's like to cover a war being fought in your own country. And the 2020 presidential election will be remembered by historians and political experts for decades to come. New book explains the events before, during, after the election and just how fragile democracy is in the U.S. right now. We will talk with one of the authors. Well, talking about fragile, the stock market is as fragile as ever, which is where we begin today. With us is Ryan Sweet, Senior Director of Economic Research at Moody's Analytics. So, uh, Ryan, as we mentioned, we were in, I guess briefly, bear territory, which means what for people who don't know? So there's no concrete definition of what a bear market is, but the rule of thumb is typically a peak to trough or peak to date decline uh, in the stock market of roughly 20%. And that's kind of what we did intraday. The S&P 500 was down 20% from its uh, recent peak. And that's typically when we consider a garden variety correction turns into a bear market. So what are we watching for now? Are there any signs that we're bottoming out with this or we thought that last week and then we uh, broke through that barrier? So what's to come next week? Well, hopefully next week's not as brutal as this week, but uh, there are no indications that you know the stock market is uh, about to bottom. I mean, it's very, very dip- difficult to precisely with any confidence say when the stock market will uh, bottom out. But uh, on average, you know, during a bear market, stocks you typically fall 36%. So if you use that kind of as a rule of thumb, we got a little ways to go. Uh, and also the stock market usually bottoms out when the Fed flinches and they start to back off. Uh, you know, that happened in 2016 and 2019. This Fed is not backing off anytime soon. Uh, inflation's too high. Uh, and they need, get, they need concrete evidence that inflation's headed back towards their 2% target. Uh, we don't have that right now. Uh, so I don't think the Fed's going to come in and save the day soon. Well, okay, and and again, and we've uh, talked about it on the show a number of times. The Fed's track record in terms of making the right decisions is not all that. This great. is the are they going to screw <laughs> yeah. it up question? Yeah, 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 it is. I mean, so when you look at what the market is doing, and you look at the other economic uh, metrics out there, in your mind, is there a greater chance now than I don't know, say a couple of weeks ago, that we may be headed to a recession? Well, first, I, th- I think. The good news is that uh, there's been uh, a number of bear markets, uh, you know, since 1929, and more than 30 of them, uh, and less than half of those uh, coincided with an economic recession in the U.S. So, uh, you know, the stock market, the, the drop is painful. Uh, like you mentioned, you don't want to look at, you know, the 
your stock, your 401k, but if that doesn't you know, uh, guarantee an economic downturn, uh, I am growing a little bit more concerned about the near-term economic outlook, not just because of what's going on in the stock market, because you know, that's the Fed needed that. The, the way that monetary policy affects the economy is through financial market conditions. So they needed financial market conditions to tighten. But to your point, uh, the Fed doesn't have a great track record, uh, and it seems like they're going to hike continue to hike uh, interest rates, reduce their balance sheet until something breaks. Either they break inflation uh, or they're going to break the economy. And I think uh, you know, the odds of a recession in the next couple of years are uncomfortably high. When we look at all these earnings reports and uh, everybody's missing their marks, is that because of supply chain issues and other factors or have we stopped spending? I mean, am I going to Target now and actually sticking to the list of five things and not buying $100 worth of other stuff like I used to? Well, the consumer's in good shape, uh, you know, believe it or not. I mean, the household balance sheets are in very, very good shape. We have $2.6 trillion in excess savings. You know, this is additional savings uh, that consumers have today uh, relative to pre-pandemic savings patterns. So this is cash that's under the mattress in checking accounts. Uh, so the consumer's fine. Retail sales has been strong. Overall, the economy is just slowing down. The housing market's slowing down because of rising mortgage rates. Uh, we're kind of you know, past peak growth. You know, we shut down the economy during the pandemic. When we reopened it, we were booming for a period of time. Now we're just beginning to settle down in a more sustainable pace. Uh, but the consumer's in, in okay shape. Uh, why, why companies are missing some of their earnings is uh, they're under a lot of cost pressures, uh, not just from higher uh, prices, you know, input prices, uh, but also because of wages. Wage growth has accelerated, and that typically uh, kind of bites into uh, corporate profit margins. Ryan Sweet, Senior Director of Economic Research, Moody's Analytics. So remember, uh, yesterday wasn't that far back. <laughs> we had all these experts saying, yeah, don't really worry about monkeypox. That was good. That was I, good. Yeah. And we felt good I about don't it. Need so don't worries. worry about it. But now, uh, <laughs> let's worry. Maybe a little bit more concern. The World Health Organization held an emergency meeting today to discuss the recent outbreak of monkeypox after more than 100 cases were confirmed or suspected in Europe. Now, there's at least one confirmed case here in the U.S. Others are being investigated. Uh, with us now is Dr. Anne Ramoyne, infectious disease expert and professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So uh, on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being, uh, oh, my God, and one being, ah, we don't really care about this. Where are we? Where are you on monkeypox? Well, I think that your scale depends upon who you are and uh, wh why you would be concerned or worried. I mean, I, I think that this is a very, uh, it's, it's important to, to keep an eye on. I think that it's, um, you know, uh, it's, it's unusual and concerning to see uh, monkeypox detected in, in so many places at the same time with no apparent connection. Um, but we're in very early days. We don't have the case investigation or contact tracing data yet. We don't know what the connection is between these cases. So I'm, I'm withholding my, my score on that scale until I know more. Okay, fair enough. But you said unusual. So is it that uh, we see this from time to time, but the cases are, are small, the outbreaks, or it's like single-digit kind of stuff, and this one's different because it's in different countries and we have more cases than, than would be usual? Well, I've been working on monkeypox for two decades in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's certainly, you know, we, we see outbreaks, we see, um, you know, sustained epidemics of, of monkeypox that can infect 
you know, many people over time. It's just, we're used to seeing this in very low resource settings, like in the DRC where I work, Republic of Congo or in West Africa, like in Nigeria, we're not used to seeing this in other places. In fact, the only large outbreak of monkeypox that we've ever had in the Western hemisphere up until this time was in 2003 in the Midwest. And that outbreak was associated with Gambian rats uh, that were imported in a holding facility. They infected prairie dogs that were sitting in cages close by. And those prairie dogs were then um, adopted as pets and infected the owners. So it was, you know, while kind of a, a, a long story, the, the, the introduction of monkeypox into humans in these clusters in the Midwest became very clear after analysis how this happened. We just don't know what's happening right now. And one of the curiosities, as I understand it, is that they're seeing uh, an unusual number of cases uh, involving men who are having sex with other men. And so they're looking into whether or not, for some reason, uh, this is being sexually transmitted, which is not the way it normally is. Well, I, you know, I'm not sure that it has anything to do with any particular community. I think that, that this just might be, um, you know, coincidental that, that it was introduced into a community and the virus is just continuing to circulate there. What this virus really, um, uh, the, the way that this virus transmits is through close contact. And so it, it could be any population having, um, where you have a case of monkeypox and then you have uh, close contact, that's how this virus spreads. So I, I, I really don't think that this has anything specific to do with any um, particular community. It has to do with it. It's, it's, it's going to spread through close contact. And that contact, that can be skin to skin, respiratory droplets, um, bodily fluids, uh, you know, anything right. we have prolonged contact. Uh, one last uh, question, I'll let you go. Uh, monkeypox is a cousin, right, of, of smallpox. Uh, this country stopped giving mandatory smallpox vaccines, I believe it was in the early 1970s. Does that have any, uh, does that mean that there's a potential problem for those people who were never vaccinated against smallpox? So um, the, my work on, on monkeypox Actually, um, in even back back a, a decade, more than a decade ago, we had a big paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences talking specifically about this. That what's happened is that smallpox, the biggest achievement in human health, has been the eradication of smallpox. And when we eradicated smallpox, the virus no longer circulated. We also then stopped vaccinating people around the end of 1971. Um, as a result, we have very little population immunity to pox viruses. And that's why we're all now susceptible to them. That's why we've seen, you know, when, when people are exposed to pox viruses, it, you know, infections can result. And so we've seen new pox viruses. We saw that pox virus occur in Alaska, maybe a year or two ago. We've seen these importations of monkey pox. We've seen camel pox occur in uh, the Middle East, uh, you know, vaccinia and other you know, cow pox, horse pox vir uh, like viruses in South America. So it's not surprising that if we see pox viruses circulating, we're exposed to pox viruses, that, um, the, that we'll start to see cases. Dr. Ann Ramoyne, infectious disease expert and professor of epidemiology at UCLA. Coming up, we will talk to a Ukrainian reporter covering the war in his home country and what that must be like and how 
close we were to having the uh, 2020 election overturned. A new book explains that and a lot more about the events surrounding the 2020 presidential election, and we will have a conversation with one of the authors. Right now, though, L.A. County officially in the CDC's medium transmission range. If we go to high, then public health officials could bring back the indoor mask mandates. But do people want to put them back on? Are businesses willing again to go through the hassle of enforcement? Stuart Waldman, president of the Valley Industry and Commerce Association, influential business group in the San Fernando Valley. Stuart, thanks for being here. So what do you think about the appetite for uh, more masks if public health says, uh, yeah, you got to put them back on? Right. Well, thank you for having me. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's weird because uh, I, I think there is no appetite now. And I think people, even people who were being careful um, the past few years, I, I think people are kind of over it. Um, you know, and, and I, I go places, I see a lot of people wearing a mask. There are times where I'm sitting around people looking at them and, and I throw on a mask because I'm just not sure. Uh, but I think you know, businesses feel that they've just gotten back to normal operations and to take a step backwards, to have to enforce uh, a mask mandate, to have to um, just deal with it. I, I don't think people want to do that. I don't think customers want to, and I don't think businesses want to. So is it fair then to say that we're at the point in the pandemic where in the beginning uh, it was, you know, the health officials, physicians mostly, that were calling the shots and what the public needed to do? Has it now morphed into really it's sort of business leaders, businesses, politicians that are making the determination? Well, I definitely think... Um, that business leaders, politicians have input, but it's, it still goes back to the health officials who are making the determination. But we're at a different point in the pandemic than we were at the beginning. At the beginning, kids weren't uh, vaccinated. No one was vaccinated. Uh, people were dying left and right. Hospitals were overfilled. If you had to go to emergency, you probably weren't going to get in if it, it wasn't COVID related. Now we're at a point where most people are vaccinated. So the people who are ending up in the hospital are the unvaccinated. So, and, you know, I have two little kids and I'll, I'll, I tell you, I, my kids are vaccinated and I feel safe. And I think before, two years ago, uh, parents were afraid. I think customers were afraid. I don't think people are at that point now. If we get to this point where the masks are told to, to go back on, uh, do you think there's going to be enforcement on the part of public health? How much did you see of that before? I mean, we mentioned the other day, you're supposed to wear them at the airport still in L.A. County, but you can go to LAX and Burbank right now and see half the people without them on, which seems like an easy place to go and tell people to put on their masks, because um, that rule at least has been out there for the past month or two. Yeah, I I don't I don't know how much enforcement there will be, and it, it's the businesses that have to. It's you know, in many places, it's the minimum wage worker uh, who has to tell people to put on their mask. Uh, obviously, there are going to be some businesses that are going to require it, and that's great for them. And there are going to be some businesses that just don't care. And, you know, people are tired. And But also, people are, are doing what they feel makes them safe. What, in your mind would change that thinking on the part of the public if if the what if the hospitals started to kind of really crash because of an onslaught of covid patients something like that yeah i i think if if vaccinated individuals started ending up in hospitals i think if kids 
started ending up in hospital, that would change people's mindset and people would gladly welcome back the mass mandates and, and probably spend more time at home. But obviously that hurts businesses who struggled for two years trying to survive. Stuart Waldman, president of the Valley Industry and Commerce Association. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The bulk of the fighting in Ukraine has shifted east as Russia looks to secure the Donbass region, home to Russian-backed separatist groups. Ukrainian officials say their troops have repelled a Russian attack there as Russia struggles to gain ground. The war has taken a major toll on Ukraine and its citizens. Covering a war in your home country is something current American journalists have never experienced, but it's all too real for Ukrainian journalists. With us now is Ilya Panomarenko, a defense and security reporter at the Kyiv Independent, an English-language media outlet in Ukraine. He's back in Kyiv after covering the war in the Donbass region, where he is originally from. Thank you for taking the time to uh, talk with us. Um, Ilya, what's happening in the, I guess it's the southeastern part of your country, the southeastern part of Ukraine, that is an area that it appears as if the Russians are are really eager and may be on the verge of declaring part of Russia, yes? Well, it's, it's, it's a big question what they want to do about this territory because, you know, uh, the battle of Ukraine has truly shifted from, you know, the whole territory of Ukraine or the major cities like Kiev or Kharkiv. It's been focused for quite a long time on the eastern part, um, which is called the Donbass, you know, the region of Donbass where these war originally started. So, yeah, it's a big question if Russia, you know, can get, can uh, achieve any of its, you know, key goals about this region because over, over the these weeks and days of battle, we have uh, Russian goals getting narrowed, narrowed and narrowed. And over the time, they, they started with taking the whole of eastern Ukraine and now, you know, they seem to be, you know, limiting their gains and limiting their um, goals about this down to, you know, taking some small portions of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions still not occupied. So it's a very limited uh, objective compared to what they have now. And it's a very big question if they want and if they have plans of, you know, annexing this uh these regions as Russians, as a Russian territory, uh, along with southern um, regions of Ukraine, or they want this just uh, just to seize the whole of these regions and leave it be something like that. Just because you know, in many ways, uh, their plan got off the rails in many many ways. So it's not on on the plan right now. So it's a big question if they can complete all even these uh, very limited. Uh, goals that they have right now in eastern Ukraine. Do you think they can get those goals, or do you feel that momentum is on Ukraine's side right now? Yeah, uh, I would say that you know it's not just my opinion, but the general opinion of the military and also defense community here in Ukraine is that you know the in general the Ukrainian military is winning the battle of Donbas, but it comes at at immense price at at just an outstanding price in terms of, you know, military casualties and in terms of, you know, destruction in the region. In many ways, it, it happened just because uh, Russia has failed to, to actually launch and sustain a very effective and very uh, fast and rapid um, offensive uh, in eastern Ukraine. 
you know, it's been more than 20 days since they focused uh, solemnly on this region. So uh, they have not achieved, uh, I would say, even 40% of uh, their minimal goals uh, in this in this operation. So it bogs down. They ma- they're making some gains, but you know, the time is running out, and they have run off uh, of any resources and uh, also reserves in terms of manpower. So it's not going too well for them. Ilya, what, course, what is you know, it? From the Ukrainian side, it's very hard. Yeah. Ilya, from, from the point of view of, as we mentioned at the outset, uh, you're Ukrainian, you're covering a war in your own country. What is that like for you? Well, uh, it should be noted that we have this war for nearly eight years now. What we have now is the, you know, the, uh, the new stage, the hardest stage. But, you know, we got used to this. Since 2014, we've been covering this war, you know, in, in our own country as Ukraine, as a nation of this country. So with the time, we managed to live with this and get used to this. So to me, as a journalist and as a nation of this country, as a native of, of this war-affected, the worst-affected region of Donbass, it's been forever in my, my head. So it's just part of our life and part of our professional career. So as a journalist, you just learn to... Um, to report, to be honest before your audience, to be serving your community, I mean, the people of Ukraine, uh, for the better of, of these people. So it makes, it, it just uh, becomes your, you know, motivational factor that motivates you uh, into working even harder in uh, to be investing even more strength into this, just because you feel uh, yourself serving, you know, serving a service to community, not just to doing the job. Oh, like uh, I also reported from other parts of this planet, uh, from war zones like Congo, Eastern Congo. Of course, I was involved emotionally, involved in the, into you know seeing the toils of of uh, local people. But of course, when it comes to your own country, to your own family, your own home uh, hometown, for instance, in Eastern Ukraine, it takes a lot, a lot of um, effort to stay a journalist. But I would say that uh, the Ukrainian journalistic community are very proud to be you know to be journalists um in the genuine sense of this word even though it's it's about their own homes right where do you think Ilya, that this is is headed because all wars end or at least most wars end in some sort of negotiation and usually the the you know the the side that wins is the side that calls the shots in how that negotiation is going to go. How do you think this is going to end with your country and and Russia? What sort of negotiation is going to work? You know, uh, I'm always trying to be a bit conservative and very careful about, you know, any predictions of, of any future, because, you know, as the whole history of this war shows, you know, it is so unpredictable and crazy that you, it, it is almost impossible to make any, you know, rational calculations or forecast about this. But I believe that judging from what we have here on the ground and what we have in terms of, you know, uh, international support of Ukraine and what we have on the, uh, as a result of actual hostilities, I think it's pretty safe to say that, you know, the fate of this war and the fate of the Ukrainian nation would be decided on the battlefields. Um, primarily on the battlefield and the results on the battlefield will just spell the situation um, 
for the table of negotiations with Russia. So based on what we have seen here in Donbass in terms of, you know, um, hostilities and also Western support, I think what we will be having is the uh, gradual exhaustion of um, Russian forces here in Ukraine because uh, they are pretty limited in terms of their manpower reserves and many other things. And uh, we're going to have Ukrainian military slowly and very painfully and very steadily getting strengthened by the Western, uh, Western, military, uh, Western military support and weapons, particularly the heavy artillery, which is just defining the, the whole picture of, uh, on the battlefield. So slowly and steadily, Ukrainian military would drive the Russian military out of uh, the occupied territories to a certain degree. I believe, as I try to stay careful and conservative, I believe what we're going to have is the uh, is getting back to the status quo of um, of early 2022 uh, by the end of this year. So Russia would be simply exhausted and denied of uh, any abilities to go on offensive and go on active war here in Ukraine in many, many ways, thanks to early Ukrainian successes and also thanks to the continuing um, military support from the West and particularly from the U.S., um, the heavy artillery, which is the game changer in this regard. What's it, what's it so like to see... I'm sorry. What's it like to see the commentary from from other parts of the world, though, thousands of miles away, saying, you know, just just give up some of these areas and then get to the table and 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 sign some kind of truce if Russia's okay with that? Because it's easy to say that from thousands of miles away, but it's a different story, of course. When you live there, you fought for it and you've been invaded. Well, yes, I understand what we're talking about. We just recently had this New York Times um, editorials article saying that basically. Uh, this war is too complicated. Putin is still strong and scary, so it makes no sense to you know to go for full victory of uh, of Ukraine because you know it's not realistic or something like that. So, in other words, Ukraine should you know stay realistic and accept you know demands of Putin. But the problem is you know that this war it's it's a very rare thing in history. It it appears to be so black and white you know, so clear in terms of the good and the bad that and the conditions and the goals of, of Russia in this war and the goals of Ukraine in this war are so opposite and so um, an alternative that, you know, I don't think that we, it's, it's just a choice between giving up on, uh, on your right to exist as a sovereign nation. There can be, you know, like a middle ground or something like that. So obviously, as we see such things, you know, in Ukraine, they are taken very emotionally because everybody understands that we can't stand against Russia by, by ourselves just alone. Uh, no matter how brave and strong our military is, it's, it's, it's very emotional. So it's, it's very, it's, it is always a huge scandal as we see such things in the West, uh, basically saying, I just give up on something um, so, like part of your territory, um, Ilya, just for the sake of ending this violence. Ilya, so, yeah. I, I'm wondering, do you have any uh, updated information on uh, all of those Ukrainian soldiers who uh, ended up leaving the uh, that uh, steel steel factory right, or, or steel uh, mm-hmm. uh, territory in uh, Mariupol? 
and are now uh, either in Russia, I suspect, or in Russian-controlled parts mm-hmm. of eastern Ukraine. Do you have any updated information on how well, they're being treated and, and that sort of thing? Well, uh, the latest news of this hour is that almost all of the soldiers and officers um, at the Azovstal uh, plant, we call it this way, as the Azovstal plant, they have been surrendered. They have surrendered to Russia. They have left the premises, uh, and they have been transported to various um, locations in Russia and also the Russian-controlled territory of uh, eastern Ukraine. It's prisons, it's hospitals, jails, um, concentration camps. Uh, you know, the Russian propaganda outlets, they have published some of the uh, video footage uh, on which uh, Ukrainian service, service people, they speak for themselves saying that they have decent, uh, you know, living conditions in, in custody. And uh, there's a special thing about all these things is that many of those members of this garrison, the Azovstal garrison or Mariupol garrison, as we call them, they would never simply accept as, you know, a just plain uh, surrender at the mercy of Russia. Based of, on what is happening here and based on, on what kind of troops we had in there and their, you know, readiness to fight and actually die and their absolute uh, unwillingness to just give up without a fight, I make it that um, Ukraine and Russia would lots of international mediators and and uh and backers they have uh, they have a sort of a deal that guarantees the life and safety of those people uh and their very probable and possible uh, prisoner exchange uh in the future without this without this strong and very compelling guarantees um and of their life and safety in russian custody i don't think that we, they will simply come out without you know any weapons and uh, decided to you know uh obey to these commands to just come out and give up so there's there's must be some kind of a deal uh so the chances are high that we're going to see them getting back home after some time sooner or later because they would otherwise they would not simply get get up. Yeah, they wouldn't they wouldn't just give up. All right, Ilya Panamarenko, defense and security reporter at the Kiev Independent. Ilya, thanks so much for for speaking with us today. We hope you uh, stay safe. We wish you the best, and uh, that we can speak again soon. This is KNX in depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The events before, during, after the 2020 election going to be discussed and written about for years to come. It was and uh, still is a wild time in American politics. The latest book features former President Trump and Republican efforts to cling to power and fight the election results. It also gets into the everyday politics of the Democratic Party and the horror and fear that gripped lawmakers as rioters stormed the Capitol on the 6th of January back in 2021. The book is called This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. It is written by New York Times reporters Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns. With us now is Alexander Burns. Alexander, thanks for for being with us. I uh, finished the book uh, earlier today, and uh, one of the things that struck me is it seems to to suggest very much that that old saying about the uh, 
the past being prologue is is the case at least in the span of of your your book and what it might pretend for our future right well i mean first of all thanks for having me and thank you for uh for reading the book uh look i think the last couple of years are it's strange to call it a prologue because it was such an eventful time uh, in its own right but i think that one of the things uh, that we hope uh, comes through in the book, I think it comes through in the title of the book, uh, This Will Not Pass, is that this is not a story about a period of crisis uh, that's over. Uh, this is a story about uh, a period of two years where American democracy was tested by uh, a pandemic, uh, by the murder of George Floyd and a protest movement that followed, uh, by a sitting president's attack on an American election and uh, an insurrection of the Capitol, and then by a year of political dysfunction uh, under a new president with no end in sight. And so, you know, it's not a terribly uh, a happy ending that we're talking about here, but it's also not an ending at all. that We're still fighting our way through uh, this period of crisis. In a strange way, do you kind of feel vindicated picking that title? Because that was probably months ago, right? And uh, it, it turned was. out to be correct. <laughs> it, it was months ago. And, you know, one of the things that we uh, debated, uh, my co-author Jonathan Martin and I uh, debated throughout the process of writing the book was, you know, this isn't a news story. You don't uh, turn it in 30 minutes or uh, 90 minutes before it hits uh, the Internet. It's like, how confident can we be in our conclusions here when, like, for all we know, between the time we turn it in uh, and the time it comes out, you know, Donald Trump decides that he's going to move to Maui and just golf full time uh, or Joe Biden actually passes a build back better. And suddenly his presidency uh, is back on track and, you know, roaring into uh, the midterm elections. And, you know, I wouldn't say we feel vindicated, but like it's certainly the case that neither of those things happened. <laughs> and like the uh, the sort of dire circumstances of the country's political system, I have not rescinded. Right. And, and in, in that regard, the midterms in November, the twenty. 24 election then after that i mean these are more than contests between two political parties this is much greater than that isn't it oh it sure is uh, and I'm, I'm glad you put it that way i think that there are a lot of people who recognize uh, that there is you know something uh, awry in the american political system right now and particularly uh given the republican party uh just how much it remains in thrall to this a disgraced former president. But the process of ho even holding these elections, uh, carrying out uh, the outcomes of those elections, uh, you know, faithfully and according to the law, uh, even that is going to be a challenge uh, in a way that it has not been in the past. And, you know, I can tell you in Washington, uh, there is a lot of some open conversation and more private conversation about just how challenging it could be to you know, have a functional democratic system in 2024 when you have the leader of at least one party uh, just tearing at the roots of that system every day. People always ask, what's going to break Trump's hold? Is there anything that can? Because the GOP had a chance and you've got the tapes of people saying they were going to and they were right up to the line and then it didn't happen. Right. I mean, that's such an important uh, moment in this book and in you know contemporary modern American history. Uh, those days after January 6th, when folks like uh, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell really, truly did uh, think about just finally uh, breaking loose from Donald Trump and actually taking him on uh, directly. I think people have a lot of understandable skepticism because they've heard for so long, you know, Republicans in private, they complain about Trump all the time. They don't actually like him that much. Well, like because of the tapes that we uh, had with this book, like they know that it's true. Like they heard Kevin McCarthy in his own words. Uh, they just never saw him do anything about it. And I think it's a totally 
uh, appropriate assumption that uh, he and the rest of them will never actively do anything to confront uh, Trump head on, because if they didn't do it after he attacked the seat of the American government, what could possibly prompt that uh, in the future? I do think that the risk to Trump at this point is less that his own party deliberately purges him by taking him on and sort of drumming him out of the movement, and more that you know Trump himself remains so self-absorbed and so trapped in the past that he wants to make everything about um, you know how 2020 was stolen from him and the media was so unfair to him that year and Joe Biden's not you know et cetera et cetera. Uh, and, and he just doesn't remain sort of relevant to most people in the country. I think that's a very real political threat to him. Alex, l- let me ask you this, because there's this notion about, uh, you know, debate whether former President Trump is going to come back and run for 2024. Even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't run, is not that sort of poison that you guys talk about in your book, hasn't not already seeped out? into the into the country has the republican party for the most part become uh, an anti with a small d democratic party i think it's a big open question uh, at this point there are certain like trump has certainly set in motion a set of anti small d democratic forces that are emboldened now uh, like they have not been at any other point in uh, my lifetime um but I also think there's a very real question about how strong those forces uh, are without this gigantic global celebrity quasi strongman figurehead uh, leading them. You know, the man is in his 70s and he will not be uh, one of the foremost figures in American politics forever, uh, just like biologically speaking. Uh, you know, there, I think there is a question about whether another ambitious Republican who lacks his distinctive personality politics and personality cult uh, would be capable of pulling off the same stuff. People are trying, though. I mean, if the polling showed that um, the voters didn't want that style of politics or that kind of persona, then people wouldn't be running so close or running to Donald Trump. Uh, and, and it seems like nobody has been paying any price for getting too Trumpy. Well, I think certainly not certainly not so far uh, this year. We're still in primary season, right? And that's part of uh, why American politics is so broken is that we're so segmented into a red and blue America and people mostly just talk to their own side. And so, yeah, in Republican primary season, uh, there's very little uh, penalty to be paid uh, for being too Trumpy. We'll see what happens in November. You know, it's going to be uh, in all likelihood quite a good year for Republicans. You're probably going to have some people win uh, close elections despite being you know, I think what would under most circumstances be considered as too right wing. But I also think there are probably going to be some people who are still too right wing and too Trumpy for the constituencies they're running in. Is it fair, though, to put all the burden of blame on on Trump when in many ways he ref, he's a reflection, is he not, of a substantial number of Americans? And I'm going to the very end of your book, in fact where you're quoting the former uh, Australian prime minister, Malcolm uh, Turnbull, uh, who says, you know, that great line that you hear all the time, this is not us, this is not America. You know what? It actually is, or it is actually, he says. Right. No, I thought uh, that was a really powerful line that stayed with us uh, after we spoke to him. That's why, I mean, it's, a, it's a, almost the very last word in the book. But yeah, I think that putting this all uh, on Trump as an individual uh, or even the Republican Party as an institution, it lets too many uh, voters uh, off the hook. 
that you know if 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 a large number of Americans did not like what Donald Trump was selling, he would never have been president, and he wouldn't have the staying power that he has now. And I'll go uh, sort of one step further than that. I think that. You know, this is not to uh, uh, sort of excuse uh, Donald Trump's uh, enormous and dangerous uh, excesses, but in a scenario where most people felt like the country was in good shape and our political system was working for them, would there ever have been the space for a Donald Trump-like figure to rise in the first place? It's something we say in the introduction uh, to the book, is that if you look back at the last 20 years, you know, politics in this century from you know, 9-11 onwards, the American people have an awful lot to feel disappointed in uh, about their government. And, uh, you know, when both parties uh, have controlled the presidency uh, and the Congress. And so it's one of the things that, you know, half this book is about Joe Biden and, and his difficulty putting together a coherent government that makes the American people feel like the adults are back in charge. And in the absence of the voters feeling like that, the space for Trump gets bigger. Yeah, well, let's round this out by talking about Joe Biden. What's happened with this administration? Because it seems like he's got one foot on each horse. It's the, I'm going to take you back to normalcy, which was the original promise, right? That was that was the reason for doing this. And then the, let's be a transformational president. So people wonder, how did that second part actually get into the mix? Because that's not the plan when you have 50 senators, because that's a losing plan. Right. I mean, I think if you went back in time and told me in the spring of 2019, uh, that Joe Biden was going to win the presidency, uh, I would not have found that hard to believe. If you told me that he would win the presidency and then immediately try to uh, be the biggest, most transformative Democratic president since Lyndon Johnson, I would have found that uh, quite, quite difficult uh, to believe because it's not uh, how he sold himself to voters in the primaries. But look, I think it's a couple things. I think uh, a COVID uh, made a really big difference in just sort of how he and other mainstream Democrats thought about the political moment. If the idea was you know, we need to get rid of Donald Trump and maybe make some modest adjustments to uh, the Affordable Care Act and, you know, a jack up the minimum wage. Well, like then there's a once in a century, a global health crisis that demolishes the economy. And that sort of tinkering around the edges presidency actually isn't appropriate uh, anymore. Um, but then you see Biden get into office and he starts to, uh, you know, I think, believe the, the hype that surrounds him, um, you know, particularly coming from the left and particularly coming from uh, the sort of uh, uh, intellectual and academic and historian class that is encouraging him to think of himself uh, as a guy who could be, you know, not just one of the big presidents of our time, but one of the big presidents of any time. And suddenly the, t the temptation is just really there. And I think he felt a great burden and a great uh, opportunity to meet that moment in a way that would make him you know, one of the great presidents, and by the way, a bigger president than Barack Obama. And yet, as we sit here today talking, uh, you know, a new poll is out. His ratings are the lowest of his presidency. And, and perhaps most uh, disappointing to Democrats is a lot of that disappointment is among Democrats. Does he end up surviving that? Does he pick his his poll ratings up substantially, and what does he have to do to accomplish that? Look, I mean, I think that, that there's a, a, a great history in recent times of you know, presidents coming into office, having a really rough ride the first couple of years, uh, getting uh, uh, whipped in the midterm election, and then recovering from that, right? It happened to Barack Obama. It happened uh, to Bill Clinton. Uh, it didn't really happen to Donald Trump. Um, but, you know, there needs to be a, a, a will to change and to focus your efforts uh, in a different way uh, and to adapt to political circumstances. And we've just not seen 
a whole lot of that from Biden. I think that if he were to come out and chart a much more decisive course on domestic policy where he's not trying to ride two horses at the same time, but he says, listen, like we tried transformation. uh, It didn't uh, work. The margins in the the Congress were too small. And so here's what we're going to do. Boom, boom, boom. That's my agenda. I'm not saying that he'd suddenly be uh, up at 60 percent, but I do think he would give his own party something to uh, embrace. And that's something that like, for a long time now, Democrats have just not really feel, felt uh, that they've had. Alex Burns of The New York Times, co-author of the new book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, The Battle for America's Future. Do you know how many animals we've talked about this week on the show? We, we've had, <laughs> been keeping we've had, track. Yeah, we've had chickens running wild in Hawaii. Yeah. We had worms. Oh, the that, jumping worms. The, the jumping worms. worms. Yeah. And then monkey, and monkey pox. pox. Yeah. It's a lot of animals. Well. Too many. We'll see what we get next week. <laughs> we'll be back on Monday.